Hello and welcome to 20 to 1, a brand new podcast that explores the lives of accomplished individuals with me, Josiah Senu, your host. In each episode, I aim to uncover the tips, tricks and insights that have made my guests pioneers in their field, all in 20 questions. So now it's time to welcome Lady Hale. Lady Hale was the first and only woman to be appointed as a law lord in 2004, then the first woman to serve on the UK Supreme Court before becoming its first female president in 2017. But this is not the only time that Lady Hale has been first. Indeed, she graduated from Cambridge with a start first, at the top of her class, and then became the first woman and youngest person to be appointed to the Law Commission at the age of 39. No one I've met has given me more meaning to the word trailblazer than Lady Hale. As a Baroness of Hale scholar at Gray's Inn, nothing gives me greater pleasure than to conduct this interview. Lady Hale, you've been an inspiration to so many. Thank you for inviting me to your home and for joining the podcast. It's a real pleasure. And it's lovely to be with you. And it's so wonderful to meet a Hale scholar. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you very much. It's awesome. So we'll get straight into it. You are a really successful individual. And it's a real pleasure for me to be here talking to you. But I guess starting from the beginning, what impact did your family have on your progression and your journey towards the bar and then ultimately the judiciary? Well, my family had a huge impact on my academic career because I come from a family of teachers. So obviously they thought that education was important It was taken for granted that although we were all girls, we would go to university, which only two and a half percent of girls in the relevant age group did in those days, a long, long time ago. It was even hoped that all of us, but one of us if possible, would go to Oxford or Cambridge. And after that, it was hoped that we would go out into the big wide world with whatever career we were best suited to. I don't think anybody thought of the bar by then, or even law. That came along later. No, that's excellent. And I guess in your newly published memoir, Spider Woman, you talk about having to take an IQ test to get into secondary school. Now, would you say that that test in some way has affected your view of the way standardised assessments take place? I don't suppose it's really affected my view. It was part of the 11 plus examination. There was um, English and arithmetic and there was this IQ test. And it was a typical Stanford Binet IQ test, which was all the rage in those days, culturally somewhat biased uh, in favour of really kind of white Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American culture. But it was supposed not to be a test of what you knew, but the test of how good your thinking was. And you weren't supposed to be able to practice for it. But I think my parents thought otherwise because we did do some practice tests in our household. <laughs> and uh, so we definitely went into the exam not unfamiliar with what was going to be asked about sort of pattern recognition and sequence recognition and all of those sorts of things, which I loved, really enjoyed that sort of thing. So I suppose my view is that well done and not culturally biased, these are probably a good thing because they can be objective. Whereas trying to assess straightforward law exams, which I did for many years, is really difficult to do objectively. 
That's really insightful, actually. So how do you try as much as possible to mark law essays as objectively as you can? You have to have an idea about what you think is good, what you think is acceptable and what you think is bad, which you must start with, obviously. It doesn't necessarily mean in a university, the student who cites the largest number of cases is going to write the best answer because the best way of testing legal aptitude is problem solving. And you could write a brilliant answer to the problem, a brilliant and original answer to the problem, without citing a single case. So I wasn't counting the number of cases. I was looking at the way in which the student analysed the problem and set about trying to answer it from principle. Yes, the cases were a good thing, but they weren't the essential thing. And of course, if you've got a scheme in your mind about how you think, you can assess merit, well, then you can try and be objective about it. The difficult thing in those days, when I was doing it, everybody hand-wrote their scripts. And it was difficult not to be biased against people whose handwriting was particularly difficult. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember one candidate that we had in Manchester who was extremely good, but his handwriting was awful. And I actually wrote out again his family law script, which was the one I happened to be marking. And it turned out it was excellent. I gave it a first class mark, but I think it would have been really tempting (laughs) just to say, this is obviously good enough for a good 2-1 mark, but I'm not going to take the trouble to see whether it's over the borderline into the first. So there we go. It's not easy. He must be very grateful. (laughs) I'm not sure he wasn't. He wasn't. (laughs) I can't remember what he did right. That's incredibly insightful. But I guess something that you've mentioned is the way you approach the analysis. And is that something that you did when you were young? Was that how you approached your studies as an undergraduate at Cambridge? Or is it something that you picked up much later on? Oh, I think that you do well, or certainly in the olden days, you did well in law exams if you were good at analysing problems. Because most of the exams were problem questions rather than essay questions. And problem questions really do sort out the sheep from the goats because you have to analyse the problem. You have to see what the problem's about. You know, you've got to ask yourself, well, what is the legal question that we're on about here? And then try and answer that. So I think the analysis and the principles and problem solving in the light of the two goes with being a law student or goes with being a good law student. And you don't get out of the habit when you go on. No. And you were an exceptional law student. I mean, you talk in your book about spending five very efficient hours a day, for example. Might law students take this as advice for how to organise their time? The advice that I would give is the same advice that led me to do what I did when I was at Cambridge which was to decide how many hours a day you're going to put into work, whatever it is. He said it could be two, it could be ten. But decide what you're going to do and do it. Don't muck about. Don't spend your time in the library gazing about doing nothing. (laughs) Um, or, Or even on your computer doing nothing very much. Do it. And that's what I did. But of course, you had to be very efficient when I was a law student because... We didn't have the internet. We could only study the cases by going to the library and reading them. 
We didn't have photocopiers, so you couldn't photocopy the case and then take it away and pretend you'd read it. You basically had to read it in the library and make the best you could of it in the library, which to most of us meant making your own headnote. Not copying out the headnote from the law report, but actually making your own summary of what the facts were and what the decision was and why. That might have meant that we were a bit more superficial than those who actually do have photocopies or printouts of all the best cases and read them and thoroughly analyse them, but of course most people don't do that. So use your time effectively, I would say, but it's up to each person and of course each course. I have to confess that I did stay up a week after term ended and a week, I went up a week earlier because there were only eight week terms. In yeah, of course. And I spent longer than five hours a day working. <laughs> I have to confess I'm being a little bit, um, I don't know, embroidering the truth by saying, but that's definitely what I did during term time so that I would have plenty of time to go out with my friends, go to parties, go to shows, participate in shows, participate in societies and all the things that make student life or have made, used to make student life such fun. That's very insightful. And I think a bit of advice that I will use myself, think about the amount of hours you spend on a particular thing. Now, you've obviously spent a lot of time within the legal profession, and it wouldn't be unfair to say that the legal world is well known for being quite conservative and traditional, with customs such as wig wearing persisting even to this day. Would you say that the formalities of the legal profession justify the very serious nature of legal matters? Or do you think that the profession may seem less accessible because it still adheres to this conservative nature? Well, you could say that both of those things are true. Obviously, legal proceedings are serious proceedings, most of the time, and they matter a great deal to the people who are involved in them, or even the businesses that are involved in them. In fact, some of the most emotional cases are commercial cases when the businesses <laughs> have got themselves really worked up about it. But it matters a lot to the parties, so it's serious, and we have to take it seriously. But taking it seriously does not necessarily mean dressing up in fancy dress. In fact, I think these days, the fancy dress is more ludicrous than serious. That would be my observation of it. We very rarely got people in robes in the Supreme Court because we told people they didn't have to wear them as long as they all did the same. But just occasionally we did. And they tended to be criminal practitioners by which I mean, of course, practitioners in criminal cases. I don't mean <laughs> practitioners who are criminals. Um, and they tended to feel somewhat bereft without the uniform, which I think was a shame because it didn't enhance the seriousness of, of their submissions. And so I do very much hope that sooner or later, the criminal courts also decide that they will dispense with wigs as the civil courts have done because I think the profession is a 21st century profession and should behave like a 21st century profession. It's also possible to treat serious matters with a smile. Uh, smiling is not unlawful in the courts. And although you mustn't, of course, give the impression that you're laughing at anybody, except just occasionally counsellors, they want you to laugh at them, but to smile so that people feel that you are 
interested in them and concerned about them seems to me to be a good thing, not a bad thing. And I have noticed the comments about some well-known women judges is that they do smile more than the men do, which I think is a good thing. Agreed. And it's quite interesting, the phrase that you use about, you know, we're in the 21st century. What would you say are ways in which today the bar, the judiciary, doesn't feel like it's in the 21st century? Oh, that's a very interesting and quite difficult question. Well, obviously, the, the wearing fancy dresses. <laughs> um, I think that by and large, the profession has embraced technology with enthusiasm, and that's a good thing. And to some extent, the courts have also had to learn to deal with technology in a way that they weren't necessarily doing before the pandemic struck in 2020. There's a large argument about what needs to be done in person and what can be done remotely. But even to think about what can perfectly properly be done remotely and therefore much more efficiently is a very good thing. When I was in the family division, we were very proud of the fact that we did do active case management in family cases before it was ever done in civil cases. But it did entail everybody, and there were usually a large number of parties to the case, turning up at court and hanging around for a half hour or quarter of an hour with the judge, where they usually agreed what they thought was a good idea, and all the judge would do was either give it a tick or say, no, sorry, you've got to think about that, we'll have to do it this way rather than the other way didn't need to have everybody there, but that's what it was. So well, now all of that sort of thing can be done either by email or by a Zoom or Teams call or whatever technology is being used, and that's a very good thing. So I think on the whole, the profession has embraced the 21st century. That's excellent. And I guess going back to the 1960s and the 1970s and recalling some of your experiences then, in your memoir, you paint a pretty crude picture of the bar during that time. Barristers telling you that women aren't cut out for the job. Do you think that progress has been made since then, and both with regards to gender and other disadvantaged groups? Of course. That's the reason, doesn't it? I was the second woman in my quite small set of chambers here in Manchester, and eternally grateful to the first because she didn't pull up the drawbridge behind her or frighten the horses, and so they were prepared to take me on as well. But there were still many sets in London that had never had a woman. We're talking the late 60s and early 70s, and particularly, of course, the highest earning, most prestigious commercial sets who had never had a woman, and it took them a long time so to do. And, uh, of course, Mary Arden was a trailblazer at the Chancery Bar and on the Chancery Bench. And she was indeed a a rare thing, a female barrister at the Chancery Bar and a successful one too. So yes, things have changed. All recognition. Uh, It's wonderful to see how many women there are at the bar and increasingly at the senior bar and on the bench. And it's also wonderful to see how many other varieties there are (laughs) at the bar. It's great. The ethnic minority quotient has gone up a very considerable amount from when I was there. Again, there tended to be one in each set of chambers, but not more than one. But now it's changed 
quite dramatically. We've still got quite a long way to go on the bench with ethnic minorities, and nor do I think everybody can be lumped into one group because it's a lot of very different groups. The barriers and disadvantages suffered by each of those groups is different and requires different things to try and redress it. So it's a harder problem, actually, than gender. But at least we've got past the day when my day, and a lot of times I've read it when reading about, for example, Rose Heilbronn, is how many people thought that women couldn't possibly go to the bar because their voices were too high-pitched and they couldn't be heard. Well, it is the first duty of a barrister to be heard, but women can make themselves heard just as much as men can. It's possibly not a coincidence that a lot of the early successful women at the bar and on the bench did have quite deep voices. <laughs> Would you say you have a deep voice? <laughs> I think I haven't got a high voice. <laughs> no, that's excellent. And I guess developing this thread of women at the bar, you write that a career at the bar is not easily reconcilable with family obligations and that that partly influenced your desire to become an academic. Um, Do you think that more can be done to help women at the bar? Well, it isn't easily reconcilable, especially if you're in general common law practice of the sort that I was in in the early 70s when I made my decision to go full-time as an academic rather than combine the two. There are certain areas of practice which are more readily manageable. You know, you don't get a phone call at six o'clock or seven o'clock at night telling you you're you're in the Carlisle County Court um, the following morning, etc, <laughs> uh, etc. Et that tends not to happen. And of course, the more senior you are, the less that tends to happen. But it still is difficult. You need good childcare, a cooperative set of chambers, clerk, and a supportive partner, if possible. You need all of those things. So those are more easily got if you're in well-paid, privately funded practice than they are if you're in publicly funded practice. There you need a lot of luck as well (laughs) to be able to do it. But on the other hand, there are women who've made a huge success at the bar while having more than one child. Now, Dame Mary has three children, for example. Rose Harborn only had one, and I do think that the difficulties increase exponentially <laughs> with each child you have. Uh, but it requires a huge amount of help and a huge amount of organisation and determination. Now, of course, it should require all of that from the men. But surprise, surprise, nobody seems to think that that should be an equal problem for the men who want children as it is for the women who want children. How that is? I ask myself the same question, <laughs> and I guess according to the age-old myth, or should I say, an age-old myth, that says mothers are unlikely to excel at their jobs because they struggle to switch off their motherly instincts. It clearly doesn't look like being a mother has made you worse at your job. Would you say that's fair? <laughs> well, I don't think it made me worse. It might even have made me better because I think if you do make the decision that you're going to commit yourself to continuing a career having had a child or more than one child, 
it makes you pretty determined to succeed at that career and to persuade others that you are good at it. So I think it actually improved my dedication to the job rather than distracted me from it. You do have to be able to turn off in each direction, but then that's a good thing to be able to do anyway. Mm. And I guess, how do you find your downtime? There's not a lot of time to switch off. You know, when you are starting out, especially if you're lucky and get lots of work, and it's really hard work at the bar. And so there isn't an awful lot of time to switch off. It's also really hard work as an academic. There isn't a great deal of time to switch off as an academic. My daughter is always saying that one of her earliest memories is going to sleep to the sound of my typewriter. So it's only later on that you find time for, for hobbies, you know, such as theatre and opera and music and reading and things like that. Yeah. I bridge. I used to play bridge quite a lot. Oh, that's a good game, isn't it? <laughs> no, I haven't played it for ages, but it, it, was, it was good fun. And that was a good way to switch off. <laughs> and it was a good way to meet all sorts of different people. Mm. many of whom were much better than you at bridge. <laughs> they always are, aren't they? Now, it's quite clear that you've displayed a huge amount of resilience throughout your life, persevering through prejudice and discrimination. And that's in addition to the adversities that are inherent within the career. Now, except for the occasional bouts of imposter syndrome, these challenges don't seem to have you at all. So I can't help but wonder whether you ever feel that the hardships you faced are fair as a woman-in-law? Well, I wouldn't say that I faced many hardships, really. I mean, obviously, when I was starting out, there weren't a lot of women and people weren't entirely sure that they approved of women or that they knew how to deal with women. I think that's really what the problem was. You know, because they were so used to thinking of women in a different box from the box in which they thought of men, they weren't entirely sure how they did business with us especially at the bar. I can remember my pupil master saying, I've never settled a case against a woman. That was part of his saying that women were either too obstinate or too yielding. He'd never settled a case against a woman. Of course he hadn't, because they settled cases in the robing room and we had separate robing rooms. And there weren't a lot of women anyway, so I don't think he was had a fair sense of that. <laughs> but I think that's just symptomatic of just not knowing quite how to, how to deal with us. Um, of course that, that got a lot better uh, over the years, you know, because there were more of us about and there were younger ones coming up. And the younger men, of course, also were much more used to dealing with women. And so it got a great deal easier as time went on. Yeah. Did you ever feel like you had imposter syndrome at any point throughout your journey? Oh, yes. I, we didn't know it was imposter syndrome. That is a term that has been coined for that feeling when you start something new, can I do it? Should I really be here? And in the book, I mention three, but basically there were almost certainly four moments of imposter syndrome wow. that I can recall vividly. I can think about them. One was when I started a year young at the high school. One was when I started in Cambridge. And one was when I started at the Law Commission. Well, I think the other one was when I started as an assistant recorder and first had to do a jury trial in the Manchester Crown Court. I think I definitely wondered, what am I doing here? Can I do it? Can I cope? 
And the way to handle it was to tell oneself, well, somebody thinks you can cope, otherwise you wouldn't be here. And if that somebody thinks you can cope, well, then you'd better do your best to convince them that you can. And if you can't, okay, no skin off your nose. Go do something different. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because at every stage, you've been the trailblazer. You've been the first to achieve the things you've done. Quite often, I've been the second. And how have you managed that? Did you always feel like because somebody else had done it, you felt more confident that you could do it as well? Yes. Well, I think, as I said, I was the second woman in the Manchester set of chambers that I joined in 1969 as a pupil and 1970 as a tenant. And yes, if if Monica could do it, well, then perhaps I could do it too. She was very nice and encouraging. I was the second permanent full-time member of staff at Manchester University. And the first was a trailblazer because not only was she the first in the job, but she was also the first to have children and get a maternity deal from the university, you know, which meant that she had maternity leave and then she could go half-time for a while and then back full-time. So she was a definite I was the first woman law commissioner. I was the 10th woman high court judge. And so by then, people have got used to us a bit. And was the family division, people were used to us living in the family division. I was the second woman in the Court of Appeal. And of course, Dame Elizabeth Butler-Sloss had blazed the trail there. And she had had to tread pretty carefully because she didn't have at all the sense that she was welcome there when she joined it. She actually started sitting in 1989. But of course, she had such a character as to win them round. So by the time I arrived, you know, this, this was all right. That's amazing. And I think there'll be lots of students listening to this podcast. And perhaps they're the first in their school to attempt to apply to Oxford or Cambridge or the first in their family to think about going to university. What advice would you have for them when they start their journeys? Well, they have to think very carefully about why you want to go to university and what you want to do there. That doesn't necessarily involve thinking, I want a good job. It ought to involve thinking, I am really interested in this subject and I want to know more about it. Plus, have a good time. Otherwise, you know, you could be earning money and not racking up debt. So you, you have to have, there have to be compensation for what's quite a, a sacrifice and quite a commitment. So I do think the most important thing is to find a course that you're really going to enjoy in a place that you're going to find congenial. And one of the things I bang on about quite a lot is that there are many other universities with good law schools which are not Oxford, Cambridge and the Russell Group universities. I've visited quite a few of the newer universities that that teach law and I'm very impressed by the amount of care and effort they put into their course and into the students whom they're teaching, as well as, of course, of their, their research and development work, which is what all universities have to do. But... I do want to try and get across the message to those recruiting for the legal profession that they shouldn't just be asking themselves, have these people gone to one of 
the elite universities ask themselves what these people can do, what they've achieved and what their talents are and what their potential is. That's incredibly insightful. And how do you suppose we might go about thinking across the diverse set of experiences that a candidate has? It's not easy. I mean, it is much easier to do it the old, old way. So when you come to judicial appointments, it's much easier to think, well, the successful silks are the ones who are going to be good high court judges, rather than thinking maybe some other people could have the skills and the necessary equipment to do it. And similarly, it's very easy when you're recruiting for the bar and for solicitors, because on the whole, it's cottage industries, so small numbers being recruited to look for people like you, even unconsciously to look for people like you, and to favour certain institutions. So, of course, number one thing is have name-blind and institution-blind application forms, and obviously to devise application forms that bring out what the person has achieved and can contribute. But don't give the name, which means you won't give away the gender and you won't give away the ethnicity, and don't give away the academic institution which got them the qualifications that they've got to make the application. And there are some magic circle firms that are doing that now. So it can be done, I think, without the world falling apart. So I'm rather hoping that some chambers will think of doing the same thing and some inns of court might think of doing the same thing. But I don't know whether they are. That's an interesting system because I guess it's anonymizing the credentials behind the candidate. But what would you say the merits of that are as compared to a contextual recruitment system, for example? Ah, yes, well, that also is another way of trying to achieve the same thing, which is then you know everything there is to be known. You know as much as you possibly can, and you put it into the context of the effort. I think either of those are honest attempts to solve the recruiting people like me syndrome, which is simply there and inevitable in this conscious efforts are made to, to address it. But I think the contextualisation is actually harder, and it's harder to sell in some quarters. I was actually in Oxford the other day and talking to somebody concerned with the administration in Oxford, and they have made very definite attempts to improve the proportion of what she called disadvantage undergraduates. And they have succeeded basically through training the DOMS in how to interview people, which is part of, obviously, parking your subconscious biases as well. But I asked about contextualisation. She said, no, they haven't done that yet. But obviously, I think they would keep an eye. Because I think it's harder. I think it's much harder. What do you do? Um, and it's much harder to sell to the people who you don't admit, because it looks like positive discrimination. Whereas the other one doesn't look like positive discrimination. It looks like eliminating <laughs> negative discrimination. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess there is always that challenge between positive discrimination and eliminating negative discrimination that exists. Now, I've only got a couple more questions. I'm really grateful for my time. I don't want to overrun it. So I'll go ahead and, and ask it. So this one, which is, you tell several stories of advocating for changes to sexist or outdated rules in the workplace. How does one go about doing this tactfully, especially at the early stages of one's career? Yeah, it's really hard. I agree. 
and I probably put up a few backs in the course of my career <laughs> by putting out one or two things. But mostly I didn't. Mostly, I'm afraid, I went along with things uh, rather grumpily, which is not necessarily the right way of doing it. I was talking to a student from a rather traditional university not long ago, and she said how shocked she was by the casual sexism that was being displayed mm. by the young men around her quite frequently, which rather shocked me. I thought, I thought young men are the better than that. And she said that her technique was to smile sweetly and say, would you say that again? And that struck me as being a brilliant technique because she wasn't being rude. She wasn't calling it out in the sense of saying, that's absolute rubbish, you sexist pig or whatever. She was just getting the person to think about what they had said and then maybe think that possibly it wasn't the right thing to say. So I'm passing on that technique <laughs> as often as I possibly can <laughs> because I think it's a good technique. Obviously, sometimes you'd have to follow it up because the person wouldn't understand <laughs> what they'd said. Because the other thing you have to do as a member of any less advantaged group is to recognise when things are being said which shouldn't be being said or thought that shouldn't be being said because on the whole we are so socialised into the uh, dominant view that it takes some time to work out that this shouldn't be being said. And I think probably, you know, the recognition that things shouldn't be being said or that things should be different was one that grew gradually throughout my uh, professional career. I think I, I agree wholeheartedly with you and I'll be taking that technique with me wherever I go now, asking for them to speak just a little bit louder. <laughs> and I guess a final question to bring this all home. In your view, why does diversity matter in law and beyond it? That's a very large question to which, obviously, a large answer can be given, but you don't want a large answer. <laughs> uh, I think it matters for a lot of reasons. Diversity on all sorts of dimensions, but obviously gender is, in a sense, the most important in a way because women are half the human race, and so <laughs> to find them being... Two and a half percent of the university population, you know, as they were in the 1960s, is just obviously wrong. Anyway, leave that aside. As far as the courts are concerned, I usually give four reasons. The first is that the courts should be there for everybody. That's what the rule of law means. It means that everybody is subject to the law, but everybody should be able to take advantage of the law, and the courts should be open to everybody. And this means that people should feel that the courts are their courts. They are staffed by their people, not by some alien beings from another planet, you know, who've come down <laughs> in their spaceship to lay down the law for the rest of us. So, in other words, democratic legitimacy, that's number one. Number two is very closely related to that, because the values of the law are justice, fairness and equality. Equality is quite a recent addition to that. It's there. And if you have a judiciary which is dominated by one sort of person, it doesn't look as if it's embodying the values of the law, and particularly equality in the value of the law. So the absence of other people you know, matters almost as much as their presence matters. So that's number two. Number three is equality of opportunity. All those bright 
young people who start out in a legal career and for one reason or another don't make it to the top or onto the bench, but it's often for reasons that can be addressed. We touched on that earlier, but they can be addressed and something can be done about it. So we shouldn't waste talent, and we are wasting it at the moment. And then the fourth one, which is much more controversial, is that more diverse judiciaries and bodies generally are likely to make better decisions. I think this is true at first instance level as well as at appellate level, but it's obviously true at appellate level. Because at appellate level, you are addressing questions of principle and you're doing it in panels. And so the panel should have a diversity of life experience and values and approaches and habits of thought to bring to it. Because if all, say, five in the Supreme Court have the same background and all think alike, you're going to get very similar decisions and you're not going to get the cut and thrust and you're not going to get the creativity that you need to develop the law in a principled and responsible fashion. But I think it's true at first instance as well, because I think we all bring our experience of life to the business of judging, to the business of deciding who's telling the truth, to deciding how to exercise the discretion that first instance judges are doing all the time. And it's a good idea if there are various experiences and the judges get together. If they're all there in a court centre having lunch together, it doesn't happen now as often as it used to do, which is a great shame. Well, then the phenomenon I talked about earlier of somebody making a casual sexist or racist remark can be called out in a way that wouldn't happen if they were all being one of the boys together. So... I think it's very important for all of those reasons. That was incredibly well said, and what a really powerful note to end on. Thank you so much, Lady Hale, for taking part in the podcast and for speaking to me this afternoon. I've enjoyed it a lot. Thank you very much indeed. And that was 20 to 1. For more insights from this episode and others, make sure to subscribe to the monthly newsletter at 20to1.com. And if you like this podcast, make sure to rate it on Spotify. With that, there's nothing left to do than to say thank you, goodbye, and see you soon.